Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the final days before the election. So as we were thinking about how to wrap up these last four years of coverage of media and of Trump and what the press did right and what the press did wrong, we spent some time thinking about who do we want to hear from in this last podcast before election day. And we very clearly settled on David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. All of us remember David's story published immediately after the 2016 election about what he thought the country was in for under Donald Trump, and it turned out to be amazingly prescient. And so I was really interested in hearing what he thought about the four years looking back and about where we're going next. David Remnick, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Where are you going to be on Tuesday night? I, you know, I'm going to be right here. I'm sitting here in my little study in uh, my apartment where I've been since mid March, um, <laughs> and doing what the doing what we can do by Zoom and email and texting and calling, and um, that's where I'll be Tuesday night. And do you expect to write uh, on on Tuesday night? I think it's probable that we're going to have some things written in advance like we did four years ago or, yeah. did, or, or in fact, didn't it four years ago. Do you know what happened then? I mean, no, I remember we, you and I talked about this. You were at somebody's party and you went into the kitchen and you banged out this brilliant piece. Well, um, I don't know about brilliant, but what happened is, you know, like fools, we were very well prepared for what did not happen, which yeah. is to say a, the first woman becoming president of the United States. And I had written, a piece in that eventuality. We had a cover in that eventuality. And, you know, not that we didn't cover Trump very thoroughly. In fact, Evan Osnos very famously wrote a piece uh, that ran well before the election on what Trump would do in office. And they had a photo montage of him in the Oval Office. And I think that photograph freaked people out. Um, (laughs) So in any event, on on election night, yes, I was at a party and, and, you know, the obvious thing happened that, that I'm sure you experienced that by, what, nine o'clock, I, I forget when exactly, it became painfully apparent that um, Trump not only had a chance, but a hell of a lot more than that. And I had a laptop with me, which I never have. I don't know why I had it. And pounded out this piece that be, was called An American Tragedy. Because yeah. that's what I felt it was always. I didn't think it was a joke. I didn't think it was funny. Um I thought it was an emergency and a tragedy from the word go. And I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. But um, if I was wrong about that, it's only because I underestimated the scale of it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, a lot has been a lot of people remember that piece. I certainly do. And I remember thinking that how dark it was. Um, and I went back and read it today, actually, and and, and sort of struck by how prescient it was. In fact, the part that stuck out to me was the optimistic part that I wanted to ask you about. In it, you say, you say the most hopeful way to look at the election is that this election in the years to follow will be a test of the strength or the fragility of American institutions. How it's true. It was, it is true. And how, how did, how do you think they have fared? Like, let's talk about the press for one thing. Well, I, that, I, I think that's the center of our conversation. I, I think better, um, more self-aware, but hardly universal. I mean, when you talk about the press and when you talk about the media, that's a big chunk 
of that takes in everything from you know lunatic conspiracy theory websites and social media outlets to to the New York Times to the New Yorker to all kinds of things so the media is a, a a pretty various animal so we'd have to you know as we used to say define our terms okay let's define and let's start with let's start at the top of the pyramid um <laughs> The New York Times, Washington Post. You're a daily reader of those places. How would you? What kind of grade would you give them for their well, coverage I, of the? I, uh, I would give grades, but I would say that the the state of investigative reporting at the places that you're describing, and I'd be happy to include the New Yorker as well, is um, extremely vital. What's complicated is what sticks. And this is a, this is a, you know, I, I, a member of my family is much more cynical than me. And he was saying on the day that the New York Times pieces, the first piece came out about how Donald Trump pays what, $750 in taxes his first year in office. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that explosive thing. And I, and I, you know, in my kind of highly categorical parental way said, well, that, you know, <laughs> That's the end of him. He's toast. You know, I meant it for 10 minutes and he just rolled his eyes. And um, and and I understand why, because of that all too famous and prescient remark of Trump's is that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. How many times have we read what you and I would have considered unbelievably disqualifying pieces of investigative journalism, much less what we would have thought were unbelievably disqualifying statements from the president himself Mm. that merely add to a bill of particulars for the people who are going to vote against him and don't seem to penetrate the way we would have imagined anyway what's now called the base of 40% of the American public. That phenomenon, which is attached to all kinds of interesting and terrifying facts about American life and media life today is, 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 is very much the salient point. It seems to me, I, you know, I know that there are all kinds of examples that one could draw out, whether there's too much both sideisms on, you know, network television or, or, or this piece of bad coverage or, or that, that's fine by all means critique it. And CJR does a particularly great job of doing so on a daily basis. And the newsletter I get every morning. Um, what's, what's really deeper than that. And what's harder to figure out how it's going to change uh, because it takes in so much is what penetrates, what reaches people. I think Bob Woodward thought that his book, his second book, would be disqualifying for Donald Trump. That once the American people knew that Trump knew full well the nature of the coronavirus as early as he did, that people would, you know, just walk away from him in droves. Well, we're we're gonna find out Tuesday to the degree to which this is true. Right. I guess so. I I guess so. Good reply. I I understand that. I mean, that, that, you're talking about a disconnect between 
what's being written and what seems to be the reception of but not not only that a disconnect also again this is this is something deeply known to people who follow cjr but the degree to which people create their own information weather or universes is so radically different and is and, and has only gotten more and more pronounced with time. Yeah, let's pause there, but and go back to this other point though, because I this is something that I don't know the answer to. But you know, if 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 you're, it's about like, are you connecting with your audience or aren't you? And whose fault is that, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm writing a story that um, I think is should outrage people and should force them to rethink sort of how they think of a of a leader. And it doesn't have that effect to a right. significant chunk of the audience. Is that on me or is it on them and their news diet? I tend to think it's on me. Well, I would posit a third possibility that it's on the new conditions of the world. In other words, a, a critic like you're being here, and I understand it totally, wants there to be something or someone to blame. In other words, that the New York Times could do this better or the New Yorker could do this better. And somehow, therefore, uh, mm. story A or B would penetrate more with mm. the big. I don't know that that's the case. There's, I mean, you look at the whole of the New York Times or the New Yorker, or the Washington Post, the Atlantic, take, take it whatever you like. It's not like there's any lack of people jumping up and down and pointing and, 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 and finding new ways and new media to make their point and to lay out the evidence. Yeah. I mean, in fact, in it's far more innovative um, and flexible and interesting than it was 25 years ago by leaps. Yeah. yeah. But, but we live in a world of social media and self-constructed um, media universes that are hard to uh, deny. Yeah. Maybe I, I think that is factor number one. I, I uh, you know, any piece can be written better or edited better. Um, we can all do our jobs better and in a more self-aware way. I, and we're, and if you're, and if you're any good at your job, you're constantly questioning yourself about that and should never stop. Yeah, should never stop listening to the likes of criticism from you or. Uh, media critics, I don't know, Jay Rosen or on the media or, wh- or wh- whomever. Yeah. Um, but I, I really do think that what I say, what I've pointed out is, is, is factor number one by, by some margin. Yeah. I don't know. You know, um, we had a piece um, last week um, in which we looked at the misinformation around mail-in voting. Right. right? And so there is a group of researchers at Harvard. I don't know if you know this researcher named Yokai Benkler, who's mm-hmm. a really great uh, sort of media thinker. And I, he know and, I, read him, I read him quoted in your in your publication. Yeah. So he went back with a team of researchers and looked at uh, something like 55,000 stories and I think 5 million tweets and a bunch of Facebook posts around mail-in voting and around this notion that it's not safe, it's not secure, your vote's mm-hmm. not going to count. And, yeah. and trying to figure out where that where the where that came from right um, mm-hmm. because most of it's not true most of the scare around that is not true and what he found is that a lot of the questions around this did start with trump with the republican base and with a small group of right-wing media that t- tends to mimic 
and parrot Trump. But that was just a tiny fraction of the overall stories. Most of the information about mail-in voter fraud came from mainstream news news outlets. And a big chunk of it came from left-leaning news outlets, all trying to debunk and um, swat down these dubious stories that this very small cabal of people had bubbled up. So you could say the same. I I don't know what the math is on the Hunter Biden. Yeah, right. How does the New Yorker approach that? We approached it that I I forget what the date of it is, Kyle, but every bit of a year and a half ago, I would say. Mm, Adam Intus, one of our uh, best investigative reporters, came to us from the Washington Post, had been briefly at the Wall Street Journal as well. One of Pulitzer there at the Post. And he did the Hunter Biden story. Yeah, I remember. Now, that story to me stands up as what the truth is, is that Hunter Biden was a very flawed and screwed up guy, had a drug and alcohol problem, um, clearly, uh, you know, adored by his parents, perhaps indulged, he wanted to make money. But the stuff that's been coming out is just, you know, it's an attempt to pull off the Hillary emails phenomenon of 2016. Yeah. I mean, to the point where last night <laughs> we're speaking now uh, on Thursday, but so Wednesday night, the 28th um, on Fox, they literally were talking about how the, the best stuff was lost in the mail and they didn't make a copy of it. <laughs> I mean, right. the, bull- the bullshit level is um, beyond, beyond. Yeah. Um, so, but do you not report on this attempt by the Trump media to pull this off? I don't think you can avoid it. Although right. I, I will point out when, what, what's that guy's name? Bublinski, is that his name? Yeah. When he gave his press conference, CNN did not carry it live. Yeah. MSNBC did not carry it live. Fox carried it live. So maybe there's to some degree a lesson learned because in 2016, the, the profligate, carrying of everything live from Trump world really did have an effect. Yeah. No, I think people have gotten a lot better. Um, I think there still is a bit of an allergy um, in political reporting to foreground the fact that this stuff is just false. I think it, it feels like a partisan political move um, when it's, I don't think, I don't think it is, but at, I, I, I think that lie. there is that, that look, look, look at what's happened with the word lie. Yeah. Kyle. Um, I, I, um, I have great respect for um, the New York Times. And they look at the use of that word, particularly where it comes to, you know, presidential pronouncements in the Trump administration, different than I do. Um, I thought you, I think you can call something by what it's named, but I I understood their hesitation and impatient with my understanding. I get it. But I have noticed um, that that has changed over time. Yeah, I, I can't, again, I don't have the uh, way to calculate it. I don't have the numbers, um, but it, it's pretty obvious that, that the attitude toward that in headlines, in coverage, in what journalists call the nut graph, you know, that, that, that graph where you're trying to leap forward and explain the meaning of a particular piece, um, that's different than it used to be. Yeah. 
you know, you've you've written a lot about trying to place this moment in some kind of historical perspective. You looked at McCarthy. You've looked back at civil rights and um, as it relates to the protest. Um, one of the questions that I have in my mind as I sort of think about these last four years is, will readers, say, of The New Yorker or of any or of any of these other publications we talk about, are they going to? Do you think that we're going to look back? and read these publications through this period and think they really captured that moment. It they captured what it was like to live in this insane period of American history. Do you think that the New Yorker um, will achieve that? I hope so. And I could, you know, in the spirit of, you know, self-promotion or defensiveness, name a whole bunch of pieces that I think do that and began doing it quite early. But I would also remind you that, you know, journalism, what's the old Washington Post phrase, is the first draft of, right. of history. Yeah. That's going to be the job not only of, you know, yellowing pages of, of magazines published in time or the pixels preserved on the internet, but also historians going back and re-examining it the way Robert Caro does with Lyndon Johnson in his era or Taylor Branch with King in his era or Du Bois writing about Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And it'll take the imaginative powers of artists and writers and novelists to do so as well. That's that's how a fully formed picture of yeah. French Revolution or the Civil War or mm. what have you is is, is formed. It's, it's um, synthetic. Yeah. I, I think you know. I I remember very distinctly, Kyle. In the campaign, Evan Osnos said he wanted to do a piece on the support behind the Trump campaign of the white identity movements and militias and all sorts of racist um, uh, uh, groups out there. And it came in, peace came in, and it was scary as hell. It was like nothing you'd read before about a modern presidential campaign. You know, the Klan had always, you know, expressed support for one right-wing candidate or another. But this was of a completely different nature. And I remember, you know, because I'm not doing the reporting. I'm sitting here in New York um, thinking, well, maybe this is too much. Maybe it's just colored too much by Evan's, you know, self-selecting decision Mm -hmm. to talk to one, you know, as it were, proud boy after another. But we published it and I, he turned out, you know, like my piece in American tragedy, if anything, if anything, you may have underestimated the, 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 the nature of the, ferocity and uh, loathsome support and, and, and mutual interaction between the candidate and, and those kind of supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I, I think, yes, I, I don't, I think if I were in CNN's position, I would look back at the way that campaign was covered with a great deal of self-questioning. Yeah. In this case, where the New Yorkers concerned, I, I don't have that feeling. Yeah. I think, you know, I look back to the Iraq war and I certainly think, you know, it, it's, it's terrible that we didn't get the story of, um, you know, the weapons story, for example, or, or, or other investigative stories or see that as clearly uh, as we should have, even in an investigative way. Yeah. Um, the Trump era, I, I feel differently about, but, you know, ask me in 10 years and I, I might have a different answer. I don't know. 
Yeah. Before we started recording, I was we were talking about how tired you were and how tired we all are. And, and has the has I this? Don't, li- I don't. I, I don't. Let me say just you know. I, I feel also. This is if you're a journalist, being a journalist is a weird state of being, right? Asking people rude questions and being hyper alive to moments like this. So I'm 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 tired only in the sense that I, I it's very hard to put your arms around a staff whom you can't see on a daily basis who, yeah. or people that you know are having a tough time. And I, I find that very difficult. Um, but I'm, and I know my colleagues are, are hyper alive to doing the best possible job that they can because I do think history remembers. Yeah. And our, re- our, our readers demand it. Have you found yourself in this last week before the election being particularly sort of contemplative about what we've just been through, or are you just powering through? I, I hope we're thinking all the time. Well, but personally, I, I'm not talking about what you're going to assign. I mean, just like as a human living through this moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I remember uh, I, my formative political and journalistic experience was to live in in Moscow between 1988 and 1991. Yeah. And when you're a foreign correspondent, you're both living inside the experience, but you have the luxury of living outside it. It's not yours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I saw what it was to have an immense amount of hope and to, to see something autocratic and worse, seemingly come to an end. And then, unfortunately, long after I left, to see that, in fact, history is far more complex than that. And I, I, I'm, you look, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not, why hide it? I mean, I, under some fake coat of, uh, of disinterestedness, I, I hope what I hope for Tuesday night. I think the continuation of a Trump presidency would be geometrically worse than just the one term, which has been bad enough. Yeah. I think it could do irreparable harm to American democracy or who knows, it may have already done irreparable harm. It did irreparable harm to the way we are with each other as Americans, irreparable harm to, and I've been mocked for saying this, but for just the state of the earth. Yeah. Our, our, our chances at surviving in, in, in any way resembling to the, the way he, uh, nature has gone on for millennia. It's that important. Yeah. It's that important. It's not about tax rates or, or other issues that are political issues that of, of importance, but not perhaps existential. <laughs> Do you know what I thought about when I thought when I when when I learned that we were going to be chatting? I thought about your conversations with Leonard Cohen. <laughs> And I thought, like, because he died. Leonard died. Leonard died just before he could know the results. I think he died the day before the election. Okay. What would he have? What would he? What would he say at this moment? Uh, <laughs> literally, I've been thinking about this. Um, like, because there was, there was. I mean, this that that piece he wrote was just extraordinary. This that the note that he wrote to Marianne on her deathbed was like mournful, but sort of also full of hope uh, in a way of like and, and there's this beautiful thing where he's like i'm reaching out my hand and you can feel it and she writes that she's reaching back and it was amazing you're, you're catching me on you know 
on the day you should be a little contemplative. One's birthday, right? Today's my oh my god, happy birthday! Yeah, well, you know, thanks. What a great, what an <laughs> amazing, what an amazing way to spend your birthday talking yeah. to me on CJR. Um, I'm happy to talk to you, but you know, I, I, it sickens me. It sickens me that this this happened, and. And to some extent, his victory, Trump's victory, was a freakish event. You know, 70,000 votes in three states. We all know the story. And maybe if the election had happened 10 times, he would have only won one out of 10 times. Whatever. But if it hadn't happened, I don't know that we would have recognized quite so profoundly the fragile nature of the institutions and presumptions that we take so dearly for granted. I don't know that we would be as hyper aware of the things that face us existentially as we are now. It's, it's a, the worst way to learn. It's a hideous way to learn. But, you know, the, the, to some extent, the Obama period, we can talk about that and argue about that in, in the nature of it, came with some illusions about who we are as Americans. And I, and I will tell you that even a most, even a, even an optimistic reading of what's going to happen Tuesday tells me that tens of tens and tens of millions of Americans still support Donald Trump and, and, and are willing to either endorse or overlook his most hideous qualities. And so even if Joe Biden wins and the odds makers say that that's a better than even chance, there is so much work to be done, whether it's on race or the environment or what we're here to discuss, the nature of the press and how we communication and information. That is, it's, it's every bit as daunting as what faced FDR in 1932. Every bit. And, and it, it's not going to be accomplished by any president. On his on his own by any by any measure, and I I don't know what Leonard Cohen would say about this. I you know he was the most high, you know some pieces you do and you have to work hard in the writing to get them where they are. I, with Leonard Cohen, it was like holding out a bowl and he filled it with with gold. He just talked and talked and talked over the course of two long days, and the eloquence there. Oh my God! It turned out to be the last weeks of his life were like nothing I'd ever experienced. It was nothing. amazing. So, what are you doing for your birthday? I'm talking to you, Kyle, and then you know <laughs> I'm doing what we do. We we just meet and we work and work and work. And I, I look, I'm a very lucky guy. I'm um, I love the work that I do, and and. I work at a publication and have worked at a publication where our fondest economic desires completely coincide with our editorial ambitions, which is to say our readers want us doing the best we can. They don't want us dumbing it down. They don't want us making it, you know, first thought, best thought. Um, they want the best of us. They respond to the best of us, um, whether it's in terms of reader letters or emails or texts or traffic. That's a that's an incredible privilege. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been great to talk. Anytime, Kyle. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All the best.
So you can follow CGR's coverage of the last days of this campaign and indeed of Election Day and beyond at CGR.org, as well as our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Watch us on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you next week. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in.